Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. My guest today is economist Alex Brill. Today, we'll be discussing the recently passed American Rescue Plan, the next proposed Biden spending package, as well as the broader future of America's tax system. Alex is a resident fellow here at AEI, where he studies the impact of tax policy on the U.S. economy, as well as the economic and political consequences of public policy. Previously, Alex served as the policy director and chief economist of the House Ways and Means Committee. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Jim. How successful was the U.S. response to this recession, mini depression, whatever you want to call it? How successful was the U.S. fiscal response before uh, the recently passed American Rescue Plan, do you think? Well, it's a question that, uh, of course, we'll never truly know the answer to because we'll never know what what would have happened or could have happened if we did differently or did better. But I would say that from uh, a year ago, uh, uh, when this started, um, and things started to shut down, um, uh, quite literally, across the economy, um, we fell into an enormously deep uh, hole, economic uh, hole and recession. And we have climbed uh, well out of that hole or well towards um, uh, through that recovery. Um, and we're in a much better place than we were um, just a few quarters ago. And at the same time, uh, we're not there yet. Uh, millions of people are, remain out of work and many businesses um, are par- only partially operating or, or shut down. Um, so we, ha- uh, I would say that the response, the fiscal response at the federal level uh, was surprisingly well-timed last year and was large, um, trillions of dollars in, in response uh, during 2020, um, and and has yielded many benefits. And so I can't say if it was perfect or not, but I would say that it has put us back on a path, along with a public health response, of course, that is um, that is putting us into a, the current year, 2021, um, and, a, and a strong recovery that's underway at the moment. I, I don't know if you recall, but it seemed for a while there were a lot of uh, certainly there's a lot of sort of social media chatter. But I think there were some uh, some, you know, some stories and you know, magazine stories calling the U.S. or at least asking the question, is the United States a failed state? It just doesn't. You know, I, I think that was sort of a silly question, but certainly if you look at our response, it doesn't seem like a failed state response, certainly not economically to me. Uh, yeah, uh, so uh, you might read a few articles that I haven't read, um, uh, tweet them to me. Um, that seems preposterous. Um, uh, two things come to mind. First of all, you know, with respect to the, the depth of, of the recession, um, re- remember that um, our policymakers uh, intentionally tried to shut off our economy in an attempt to save it. Um, and that's not a crazy idea. That's not a crazy response. Uh, in a in a public health crisis, in a pande- pandemic, um, we needed to to in a sense suspend the economy temporarily 
Um, and then we need to recognize the costs that was imposing on on our citizens and our businesses. And then we needed to get the economy going again and, and, and restart the engine. Um, I also am reminded that when this started, we thought it would be for um, a month and a half, uh, perhaps not uh, what will probably turn out to be a year and a half. And so we didn't we didn't go into this um, crisis with perfect foresight of, of exactly what it was going to be or how it was going to unfold. But um, but in many respects, we successfully uh, shut down the economy. And and in, and I certainly think we are doing well to to restart it. And I don't mean to suggest that it is, you know, mission complete. Uh, mission accomplished, um, and that everything is is, is fine and hunky dory. Um, but we are on our way, to, uh, and in the midst of a strong recovery. So, if it's not, we're not, if we're not quite yet at mission accomplished. Are we one point nine trillion dollars away from being uh, <laughs> mission accomplished? The uh, at least that's the the the. the and I want to talk a bit about what the American Rescue Plan perhaps actually costs, but the sort of price. They see abandoned about as a one point new one point nine trillion dollar American rescue plan. Are we that are we that far away from being back to normal? Well, the American rescue plan is uh, is many things um, besides a rescue plan, um, and uh, and those things are, are those other things, those associated policies and provisions, are in fact um, quite costly on their in their own right. I'm reminded a little bit of the the Green New Deal, which was uh, very, which would have been very costly. It's a proposal that's very costly, and and only a portion of it had anything to do. Uh, only a portion of it was green, and most of it was was quote unquote New Deal. Um, and so there, there, uh, I think of this legislation um, much like a train, uh, and both in the sort of process perspective of using you know, the budget reconciliation process, so you only needed. 51 votes in the Senate and those and the rules around reconciliation. That's a it's a train in the sense that um, once you that the first thing that happened was policymakers decided how big the bill would be. That's um, uh, how many cars would be on the train, perhaps. And then they came back in a separate set of legislation, the one that was just signed by President Biden and loaded up that train. Uh, to the tune of of one point nine trillion dollars, and the way the budget reconciliation process works is once they decide the length of the train, they can load up any cargo they want. Um, you know, spe- combinations of spending and tax policies, and some of those uh, train cars, which I guess we could say, um, are clearly related to to the pandemic at hand, and are related to you know vaccine distribution and research and, and other. Uh, timely and relevant matters and and some issues some related to the recovery we can debate if they're perfect policies or not related to unemployment because we have a lot of it at the moment whether that was the right unemployment policy response and then other policies um you know just seem to be just multiple cabooses on this train one after another that have nothing to do with uh with the bill at all uh with a with the underlying uh challenge at all i should say and so sort of thinking about what the the size of the economic problem and the and relating that to the size of the response, um, it does not match uh, up, and that's because the response is about so many more things beyond just the the recovery and the pandemic itself. So, if the rescue part of the American Rescue Plan doesn't quite accurately describe this plan, 
how about the 1.9 trillion part? That that should that that should be easy enough to to count up and figure out. Is this actually a 1.9 trillion dollar plan? So my view is that it is not. My view is um, that using the tools of the reconciliation process, and in particularly that sometimes the the necessity or the opportunity uh, to do things on a temporary basis, that you actually don't mean to have be temporary at all. Uh, what I'm talking about here is a, a series of tax policies that are in, that are included in the American Rescue Plan for uh, calendar year 2021. Temporary tax provisions. You say, oh, a temporary provision to solve a, a, a you know a temporary problem. Maybe that makes sense. But but a large share of these policies are intended um, are poorly targeted as a recovery tool and are not intended at all to be temporary. First and foremost in that is an expansion of the child tax credit. The child tax credit um, is seems to be ever expanding. Some people like that. I don't. Uh, it was once $500, then it was $2,000. Um, now it is $3,000 or $3,600, depending on the age of your children. Um, that is a temporary provision. But why on earth, if you think that that's a good idea, would you think it'd be a good idea only for one year? No one, no one would. And, uh, and the Democrats don't think that. They think this is good permanent policy. Uh, and in some work that I did um, recently, I estimated if we think about those provisions that are temporary in the bill, but obviously intended to be permanent, the overall cost of that bill is not $1.9 trillion. It's in the, in the ballpark of, of $3.3 trillion, just thinking about the, the permanent costs, the expected permanent cost of those tax provisions. And I think the response uh, from from some quarters, particularly on the left, would be, "Okay, I mean, it's fine. Uh, bigger number. Uh, interest rates pretty low. Inflation's pretty low. Uh, maybe we may not know exactly what you know. Economists like to say fiscal how much fiscal space there is, how much runway, you know, till uh, till it's a problem." But we seem to be nowhere close. So uh, okay, one point nine, three point three, no, no, no big deal. Whatever. What's the case? What's the case that might be that could be a deal, a big deal? Yeah, yeah. So those same voices, are, the, the, those same um, voices, were the same who were telling us in 2017 how on earth could Republicans pass what they called "quote unquote" tax reform. Um, at the cost of, I think, $1.7 trillion. It's been a few years now. Um, we can't afford this. This isn't tax reform. This is, you know, uh, unsustainable um, tax relief uh, that's that's not appropriate or not necessary. So it's it's amazing how the same people can 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 have different views in different situations of the same problem. Um, so yeah, I mean, w- one can say, you know, hey man, it's a it's a $20 trillion economy, and this is good stuff. So, um, you know, let's just do it. Uh, and they can point across the aisle at the other party who's also, um, you know, contributed to increases in the deficit. And, um, and that bipartisanship, that willingness, you know, among many lawmakers um, to uh, approach a variety of political challenges by increasing, by, with a deal that increases the long-term fiscal challenges in facing our country, 
is that a problem? That's your question. And I think it is a problem. I don't know when it will be a true crisis. Um, I, I don't think other economists know that answer with any precision. But there's no free lunch here. There's no free money. There's low interest rates um, at the moment. There, that's certainly the case. But the more that we borrow um, and an interest rate and with an understanding that there is always a risk that interest rates will be higher. In fact, an expectation that interest rates will be higher in the future. That is passing that burden of today's borrowing onto tomorrow's taxpayers. And we have another bill coming up. It sounds like a two to four billion dollar, a two to four trillion dollar infrastructure bill. Are we going to pay for that? Well, that's going to be the big debate. Um, uh, you know, Democrats, um, uh, President Biden um, campaigned uh, in large part on a series of tax increases that are part will be part of his budget or were part of his campaign. Um, and um, it is difficult uh, to do uh, what I'll call naked tax increases to just pass, even Democrats themselves, to just pass a tax increase um, because people like to see some some return on that. And so I think that there is a view that there's a sort of two birds with one stone, uh, both an opportunity to spend more money, which is a desire, an infrastructure bill or maybe crafted or, or marketed in part as a as a climate bill um, and uh, an opportunity to to achieve a second goal, which is to to change the progressivity of the tax code and raise taxes on uh, on high income earners. And that's what what lawmakers sometimes refer to as a twofer, right? I mean, they, it's not like the cost of one for the benefit of the other. In this context, I think that um, many in the majority see this as a twofer, two, two wins at the same time. You know, I've, I've heard such a dismissive attitude about, about paying for things and about, and, and about the debt, as we just uh, spoke about. Why, why are we raising taxes? Uh, are we raising taxes to pay? For, let's say we uh, this this next spending plan. There's there 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 are some tax hikes. Why are we are we raising taxes to pay for stuff? Are are we raising taxes for sort of ideological reasons or or, or punitive reasons? Why are we doing that? Especially if it, if it's going to be politically difficult even among Democrats to do. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you're asking me a hard question about the, you know, the motivation of 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 lawmakers versus sort of the e easier question sometimes of the, which is the consequences of their action. What's the motivation behind their 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 desires? It's it's hard to know. My sense, my impression, is but some lawmakers. Um, it seems punitive. Certainly, yeah. there seems to be a punitive aspect, like. They've gotten they the rich have gotten away with things or companies have gotten away with things and it's almost secondary like the actual revenue would raise it's it's a it's, yeah, I'm sure they would say that's kind of a fairness issue, right? I, I think there's, there's sort of three there's three possible answers here. One one is is this like you know if you want to buy something you have to pay for it. You know it's kind of like a basic uh, financial principle that, that guides us when we go to get a cup of coffee um, or, or, or anything else like that. Um, and so therefore, we might recognize that the you know, roads and bridges are in disrepair, want to solve that problem and want to finance that problem on the, you know, with a tax increase. Those who are using those roads and bridges should be paying for their repair, 
Um, that seems reasonable. Others might say, no, the, the life of these roads and bridges are so long that we should we should borrow it now and pay it back over the next 40 or 50 years or inf infinite period. Um, that That's a kind of you know financing perspective. But I think there are other perspectives here. One is this punitive idea, um, and I think that's in play. And another is just a different view about the pro what the appropriate progressivity of the tax code is. And I think it's important, you know, sometimes Democrats get um, painted as the party that just wants to raise taxes. And I think that that's a, a bit of an oversimplification because it, they don't want to raise taxes on everybody. I mean, core fundamental to the president's campaign is a is a limited no new taxes pledge, right? It's a no new taxes, uh, whether he can stick to it or not is, is debatable, but it's a no new taxes on anyone earning under $400,000. And so, so he is both um, uh, committed to raising taxes and committed to a this limited partial no new taxes pledge. Um, and that that's about the progressivity of the system. And this notion, um, that's the fairness issue that we should we should both be, in fact, cutting taxes um, for some households and raising taxes for others. And that's separate from this question of like on net, should we have higher taxes or should we have higher spending or, or more borrowing? Obviously, they interact. If you're, if you want a sort of a transformation of the safety net, the welfare state, doesn't that have to be like everybody, everybody pays into it? And maybe that's through the existing system, maybe that's through a value added tax. But is that, if that's the project of some on the left, does just raising taxes on the rich, can you do that? Yeah, um, I think it's a really important question. It, this long-term question of, the sustainability, the, finance, the financial financing sustainability of the tax system, um, with given the current safety net that we have, the current Social Security that we have, the current Medicare program we have, not to mention um, how are we going to finance, how would they finance um, an expansion of that, of those programs um, to, to cover the costs of the trillion dollar child tax credit plan um, that they are in the process of establishing and, and, and other initiatives that, that, are, um, that are popular among some. Um, and the, I believe that it is not sustainable. Um, it's not uh, from an economic perspective to expect to be able to continuously finance uh, the current uh, projections, fiscal projections that we have, not, and certainly not these future um, enhanced programs that are being discussed um, only by raising taxes on, on households that make $400,000 or, or anything like that. Um, it's much more economically damaging and at some point is literally not, not doable. <laughs> I mean, like literally, like there's not enough money. Um, and so um, it's concerning when we, when Democrats um, put themselves in that box of uh, demanding that the tax increases only come from a from a very s small segment of the taxpayers. Obviously, most of that's talking about you know the rich paying more versus the middle class, and the middle class includes people who are earn three hundred ninety nine thousand um, dollars, apparently. Um, but it but it's but it's this other notion that there's like these protected groups that can't pay or shouldn't pay uh, tax, and and that's not sustainable in an economic sense, and I think in a political sense, 
it's not a good idea either. And that's this kind of, you know, it's this old idea that people should have skin in the game. And I do believe in a progressive tax system. I do believe that people at the top should pay more as a share than people at the bottom. Um, but I also believe that this notion of skin in the game is, in, is important to hold on to. And broad-based taxes, for example, the one you mentioned of uh, a VAT tax is a very efficient way a very effective way um, to get more revenue from a broader base. I've I've sort of always thought that before uh, a politician is going to say we get we need we need a, something like a value a value added tax we need to raise taxes on uh, on on the broad middle class they want to they want to first be able to say look we've we've raised taxes on rich people we've raised a lot of taxes on rich people we've raised a lot of uh, taxes on corporations. Um, don't you agree that we've done that? Uh, and then they'll, and then they'll, then maybe they hit the middle class with a tax hike, but, but, um, so we have corporate taxes, part of the, maybe one of the ways, uh, the tax taxes that will get raised in the sort of next Biden spending package, which is a spending and tax hike package would be raising, uh, the corporate, uh, the corporate rate, uh, maybe to as high as 28% from, uh, from 21%. Is that an economically significant change if that were to happen? Um, the sky would not fall, um, but it is an economically uh, significant change. So, so I don't mean to oversell like the, the a, a, a sort of next doom, some sort of extreme doom and gloom scenario, but but raising the corporate tax rate um, from twenty one to twenty eight, which is you know holding on to the the view and the Biden administration that was the view of the Obama administration that 28 is the magic number and that anything below 28 is 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 a giveaway you know so that was this agreement that 35 was wrong but 28 was magic and 21 is absurd you know first of all we, we don't know with with any high 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 degree of precision i don't wouldn't mean to suggest that 21 is the perfect rate um but that as we raise that rate from 21 up seven points, up a third to 28. What we know is that um, in a system, in an income tax system where we're depreciating our investments over time, that's a tax on capital. And what we know is that taxpayers respond to that, right? There's a consequence of that tax system. And so there'll be you know, lower after-tax returns on new investments, and that'll discourage those investments that were, which are the very same investments that Democrats and Republicans want right they want that investment I, I democrats aren't against investment in the united states they're in favor of investment in the united states what they seem to not appreciate at least in my view is the consequences of tax policy in driving some of those corporate decisions with respect to where to locate their investments and how many investments to make let's say you have a couple minutes uh with a uh, member of congress who is doesn't want to you know raise rates on companies? Probably also, let's say they're a little skeptical about climate change. How do you make the case for a carbon tax? Um, so I think a carbon tax is is a is a fascinating policy. It's one that I've thought about a lot. I've written about a little bit. Um, I think it's a. It's, to be honest, I think it's a no brainer. Um, I think to many public finance economists, it's a no brainer. That's a negative externality from carbon emissions, and we should meet that match that with a uh, a tax to to 
incorporate that social cost into the actual cost of goods that, that are associated with, you know, their carbon intensive products. Um, and, and this is a, a clear and simple way to address a market failure. That's the kind of thing that government is intended to do. Um, and it generates a lot of money. And one of the things that I, that's, to me that's so interesting about a carbon tax is you can be interested in it because you're concerned about the climate. Um, and a lot of people are interested in it for that reason, because it's a very, very efficient way um, to reduce emissions and, and address climate change. But it's a policy that could raise a trillion or $2 trillion in revenue. And you could be interested in this policy without a care about the climate, because it offer, offers you this opportunity. What do you want to do with a trillion or $2 trillion in new revenues. And you could cut the corporate tax rate. You could cut the capital gains tax rate. You could finance the repeal of the estate and gift tax. You could finance the expansion of the child tax credit, the seeds that were just planted in the bill last week for an expanded child tax credit into perpetuity. Um, you could fix the roads and bridges. You could you could do a little bit of a, of a lot of those things. And depending on, on how you choose to use those monies, you'll have different economic consequences. That's a problem that I think a lot of lawmakers would find appealing, you know, one that they would they would want to solve. They could pay down the deficit. I doubt that they would, but they but they but they could. So I think there's both a climate conversation to have about a carbon tax, about the efficiency of using market tools and market mechanisms relative to the command and control strategies of, of regulations that are neither durable uh, nor cost effective. Um, and then there's a non-climate conversation, which is what would you prefer to raise the corporate tax rate to 28% or to impose a carbon tax, which not only sol solves or mitigates some of our climate challenges, but also um, you know, prevents us from needing other uh, more costly tax increases. What are the what are the most sort of common concerns uh, about a car uh, a carbon tax? Do you think and do you think they're legitimate or how or or how would you meet those concerns? Yeah, so one of the concerns uh, that that some policymakers express is this concern about any new tax that the that 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 a new tax is a, a money machine for Washington, and then if we if we open the door to creating a new tax, then that's going to somehow lead to bigger government over time. Um, so one way to mitigate that is with uh, a revenue neutral carbon tax. So you're simultaneously reducing another tax. We're not increasing the size of government or, or the size of revenues flowing into the government. Um, that doesn't always satisfy everyone because they say, well, you just cut the other tax. It still exists. And now there's a second tax. So now there's sort of two levers or two dials that can be turned up by a, a future Congress to raise taxes. I, I, I don't think that that's, that that's true, but I, um, but I know that that's one of the concerns that, that is sometimes expressed. Another concern that I hear sometimes is uh, people will say, well, what should that carbon tax, what should it be? What's the right rate? What should it should be? $20 a ton, $10, $5, $50, $500? Know, where there's a big debate about what is the, the social cost of carbon and how do we know how to set this, this tax rate? And I think that that's a hard question to answer. The, I give a sort of simple answer, which is, I know that the, the correct rate is not zero. Today, the tax rate on, on carbon is zero, and I know that that's wrong. Um, I believe that, that that's to be wrong. I'm not sure, honestly, um, if it should be $20 a ton or $40 a ton, but let's start with a, with a carbon tax rate that's like a 
the best guess with not over guessing um, and and see what happens. And that's a it'll it may turn out to be a more effective tool than we anticipate. And so maybe we don't need to have a hundred dollar ton carbon tax. Maybe twenty will 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 do the trick. Um, but let's start by not taxing um, carbon emissions at zero, and um, and just working out over time, seeing what the what the responses of of the innovators and and the new technologies and what the responses of the consumers. What what do do you think Republicans want to do? Uh, about taxes more broadly going forward. It seemed certainly for a long time that it was well, you know lower taxes, but there were but I remember when everyone would run for, run for president, they'd have a, a very big sweeping tax plan. It wasn't incremental. They wanted to, maybe they wanted a, a, a different a flat tax. They're all different kind of flavors of flat taxes, or, or maybe they wanted something called a fair tax. But it, it's like to run for president, you need kind of this big a big fundamental tax plan. If someone were to ask me, like, really, like, what's the big Republican idea on taxes? What do they really want to do? Um, I'm not sure I would. I'm not sure I would. I, I would know what I'd want to say. I mean, do they want to get rid of the corporate tax? Do they want a flat tax. They what? Is there like a, a like a, a a big idea or a portfolio of big ideas that if Republicans had the White House and Congress? Like this, this would be sort of the big idea tax plan they would want to put forward. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. You know, when I when I first came to Washington, I don't know how many uh, conferences I went to that were debates over over exactly what you're talking about. You know, in the, this is like the late '90s. You know, like you know, is it the fair tax or the flat tax? Is it the the VAT tax or the USA tax? And which one is the I one that's so. going to grow the economy the more, the most, or whatever? And the and you know. To many economists, these policies were kind of all economically the same or very similar, um, and some of them were easier to administer or impossible to administer, and that there was just a lot of a lot of yelling, um, you know. And it, it sort of reflects, like you know, each candidate needed their own their own thing, but actually their own thing was they were all kind of the same in some respects, um, and that that is gone, right? I mean, th there's very little fair tax chatter. There's very little. USA tax, universal savings account proposals, various ways to 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 rip the code out by its roots, as one former chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee used to say, you know, and start all over from scratch with and consumption taxes versus income taxes. And Republicans, you know, are now for something that's like a lot less sexy, which is income tax reform, you know, like operating within the confines of the existing system. We're going to have an income tax and we're going to you know, broaden that base and change the distribution of it, um, and and lower the at least the statutory rates, um, and and we saw this play out in uh, in 2016 and, and 2017 um, in an effort led by House Republicans to to try to have not fundamental tax reform but fundamental income tax reform. What we ended up with, as as is always the case at the end of a legislative process, is less than we set out for at the beginning, you know, and there were going to be only, you know, I forget, three tax rates, and then they ended up with the same number that we have, six or whatever it may be. Um, and we ended up with lower rates overall, but 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 a lot of compromise um, and a lot of progress. I don't mean to say that the, the, the legislation in 2017 was not a step forward. I, I think it was progress in, in large part because of the corporate tax rate that came down so much. Um, but you're asking about what's next. And I think that Republicans, I would think this is a this is a kind of a lull because it is 
I mean, there is a, kind of like an inherent interest about taxes on the right. And if the fiscal situation continues to get to deteriorate, it's going to be very hard to efficiently raise a lot of money in the current system. So I, I assume that like ideas for big, bold tax reform will will be back at some point. I think so. And I think that this issue that around the, the carbon tax will be one of those ideas that will be on the table. And it will be appealing if it is seen as superior to an alternative idea. So by itself, it's like to Republicans, hey, do you want a new tax? The answer is no, thank you. But if it's understood, you know, compared to which of these taxes do you oppose the, the least or would you prefer this efficient tax to this uh, that Congress gets to control or this um, re regulatory framework that the, that the White House gets to control, the executive branch gets to control. You know, it's, at some point, I think things like a carbon tax become much more appealing than they otherwise would be. My guest today has been Alex Brill. Alex, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Jim. Good to talk to you.